Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I think what we'll call this is an esports history lesson with Charles Conroy, who's currently with the Switch. You might have heard me talk about the illustrious and massive championship gaming series, which ran from 2007 to 2008. Back in the day, it was a live streamed with a live studio audience in a live studio, Counter-Strike and multiple other game competition where players were paid full salaries and the spending was quite intense. We break down this, we talk about esports at the Olympics, where esports is heading, where where it's come from, how much money people used to earn back in the day versus now, and so much more. I really enjoyed this episode. Charles is a fantastic guy and he's been around in esports much, much longer than many of us have. So it's time to take out your notepad and listen. Enjoy. Charles, mate, how are you? Hey, man, how are you doing? Thank you for taking the time and getting up early. I know it's uh, time zones <laughs> can be a struggle. No worries at all, man. No worries at all. It's it's the hardest thing is um, when we're out of daylight savings and you guys are in daylight savings, especially for something like New York. I think it's... um. I think it's 8 a.m. my time is 6 p.m. their time. So, so it can get pretty rough here in Australia. Yeah. Well, appreciate you getting up early. No worries, man. And it's it's good that we got to uh, got to reschedule this too after having some tech problems last time. But, you know, I, I guess you, when I originally invited you on, I had like a, a theme of like a lot of the content that I was doing on LinkedIn at the time, which was I want to learn about esports and its history. You know, some people, I think from the outside, call me an OG in esports, but I don't I don't see myself that way. You know, I kind of started as a player in around 2008. Obviously, if you look at the, you know, millions of decks that are around for esports, it started back in the, in the 70s. But, you know, I think it really kicked off in the 2000s. But for you, I, I see you as a bit more of an OG because by 2007, you're already, you know, working in the professional league. So I'd love to kick off this chat with just like an elevator pitch as to your history, like in the esports and gaming space and some of the roles you've, you've held and where you are at today. Yeah, uh, I'll try to make it quick. It was 16 years of my life, or 17 years at this point. Uh, I started as a player when I was 15 years old playing a game called Counter-Strike. I'm mm -hmm. sure we've all heard of it. Um, I got together with some of my friends, and we went to an event called CPL uh, in 2002. We didn't do very well. We lost two games, but we had a blast in like the BYOC area, and I kind of I kind of realized right then that this was going to be a big thing and that I wasn't going to be good enough uh to to be as good as some of the other guys there so i walked around and i just met people um i put together a, a little team and i said you know it, next year i will pay for the team's travel to cpl um no salaries or anything at that point but i i got some cash together and i i paid for these guys to go down we had two hotel rooms three out of the five guys drove it wasn't like a ton of money compared to now but we, we went back and we won one game um, I didn't play on the team at this time. And then I realized, look, I really got to take this seriously. So I started reaching out to sponsors. Um, I got a corporate sponsor. I got much better players, um, much better players. And then we came back and we started, you know, coming in number one, number two, number three at, at tournaments uh, all around the country. Uh, that's when JMC was born. After that, we got picked up uh, for some international tournaments where travel was paid for. We went and filmed a TV show in Korea uh, called WEG. And that was in 2005. We then, after WEG, came back to CPL and came in third, beating the likes of SK and NIP. Uh, we actually knocked complexity out of that tournament. Um, hmm. You know, we, we beat pretty much every team in the world. Um, actually, we didn't beat SK that tournament, but we did beat NIP when they had Heaton. <clears throat> I remember because we lost SK. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that was a big moment. Um, then we went to the Esports World Cup and represented the United States uh, and kind of spent spend time traveling around the world playing Counter-Strike. Uh, it was at that time the Championship Gaming Series came about, which was DirecTV's attempt at a franchise league. 
very big deal in the U.S. There had never been a like linear TV league before, um, and they had all, all this money and these NFL producers and the guys that did NASCAR were behind it. Um, it was exciting, right? So everybody wanted to be in the CGS. I was a little worried I wouldn't get the look, even though I was one of the best managers in the world from a success level because I was 19 at that point, um, but I did. Mm-hmm. And I was the eighth manager hired out of the eight managers in championship gaming series, uh, the youngest manager by about nine years. And I ran the Dallas Venom. The Dallas Venom was sort of this like edgier, cool team. We did not have a lot of success the first season. Uh, I learned from my mistakes. I, I changed some rosters around. Unfortunately, I cut some players I was very close with. And we came back and we were the strongest team in the world the next season. Uh, There's 18 teams added season two. We were living like rock stars. Honestly, CGS was amazing, and I'm sure we'll dive into it later. But, uh, you know, we all had apartments in L.A. and cars and livable wages. The draft was at the Playboy Mansion. Season two was at South by Southwest. There's all these celebrities involved. It, it was crazy. Like, it was the craziest thing mm. at the time going from hotel ballrooms to that. Um, unfortunately, CGS folded. They went through about $50 million in two years. The burn rate was crazy high. Um and at that point, a good friend of mine, Jason Lake, he's still one of my best friends to this day, uh, and I decided to reform a team called Complexity. There was also an operations guy named Jason Bass who used to own Gofrag.com uh, mm-hmm. back in the day, and he joined us. So three of us reformed Complexity. Uh, we didn't really have any money. Well, not really. We had no money. We had zero dollars. Uh, so we had all these stars that were on TV for the last two years, um, and we knew they had value. We knew esports had value. Um, so I actually flew to CES, Consumer Electronics Show, with just a uh, 12 pitch decks. Then I went up to probably 120 booths and just cold pitch complexity to every single one of them. Uh, luckily, a few of them were familiar with the show. Creative Labs, who made this headset, uh, actually just was like, we'll do it. And on the floor of CES on the last day, said they'd be the title sponsor for the team. Complexity was reborn. It was really exciting for all of us. Uh, and sort of the rest is history with that. We spent eight years, uh, you know, bringing complexity back to greatness. They're obviously doing very well now. Two and a half years ago, we sold complexity to the Dallas Cowboys, uh, which was, you know, probably the most exciting moment of my life. And at that point, I was a free agent. Uh, I did some hosting for MLG <clears throat> and Call of Duty. I was a floor reporter for mm-hmm. that. I hosted uh, a couple shows on the MLG network. And then I was tapped by the Switch. Uh, I, I wanted a job opportunity that, combined sports and gaming right and the switch is the world's largest live event broadcaster so we transmit everything from the super bowl to the pga tournament to the olympics from point a all around the world to whoever's buying the tv rights we deliver that signal um and lately we've been a huge production company so we're producing events as well um from a broadcast perspective so we have all all sorts of products that a tournament can use to produce a live event so they hired me to run gaming uh proud to say in the last two years we've gone from not being in esports to being the world leader so it's been a really exciting new adventure i had to definitely learn new technologies and a new role and i knew nothing about broadcast and and now thankfully i I know enough to keep me dangerous so Hmm. fantastic that's the past 16 years of my life man (laughs) man good good summary and on that last point we're definitely gonna have to chat after this call i'm working on working on a project maybe we can do some stuff together but awesome it was it was cool to see those names, I guess, sprinkled throughout. And and I think even for me, you know, I didn't realize that the CGS was at that level, you know, that it that it was. So it's probably, you know, I mean, I guess one of the one of the easiest ways to start is you were saying, you know, as far back as as what two thousand and seven, two thousand and five, you guys were on a TV show in in Korea. Yeah, oh five, we were on a TV show in Korea with a Player Village. Um, 
So that was, it was a weird time. I actually didn't travel with the team. Uh, two days before I was supposed to go to Korea with the guys, my lung collapsed and I was in the hospital for yeah. eight days. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty, pretty gnarly. But uh, so I couldn't go with them. And unfortunately, by the time I healed up and could fly, they were knocked out of the, out of the tournament. But uh, they came back. We made a couple of roster changes and then had the legendary CPL run that, that people talked about for a long time. Mm. So it's, it's crazy, you know, I mean, you know, pre CGS collapsing in 2008, you know, I was doing a little bit of doing a little bit Googling around, you know, the, the CPL back in 2008 had a $300,000 prize pool. You know, you're talking about TV shows in Korea, you're talking about 2007, 2008, these players living like rock stars. But I mean, if you fast forward even to 2014, 2015, it feels like esports wasn't even at that level then. So, so what gives was was there a recession because of the GFC? You know, was it people spending too much money too early? And you know, I think there's a few things to unpack in there. Yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> touching on the CPL, right? It, it's easy to have big prize payments if you don't pay them. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm personally owed a lot of money by CPL. Um, I know a lot of people are. Uh, Angel Muni has started a, a company and and basically overpromised, underdelivered. Um, I think that hurt gaming overall because the CPL was sort of speaking of hope. I think CGS folding after they spent $50 million and had News Corp behind them hurt gaming. Uh, certainly in the United States, people were afraid to touch it, right? They said, if you can't mm-hmm. do it with $50 million and the backing of News Corp, this isn't going to work. Um, it was a very dark time to be in esports, uh, you know, and a lot of people left. So a lot of people from that era, that's when you saw them exit, exit stage left there. Um, you know, luckily Lake and I had each other and Jason Bass and we kind of supported each other. Um, guys like Craig Levine came up big during that time. Craig is obviously the godfather and another one of my very good friends. Um, mm. So, you know, those of us that stuck around are in good places now. But it was a, it was a dark time in esports. Uh, the global financial crisis didn't help. The fact that a, a few people had tarnished the reputation of the entire industry and its commercial viability didn't help. Um, and so a few of us picked up the pieces and and then Twitch came about. And when Twitch came about, everything changed. And um, mm. everyone asked, what was the catalyst? And it was 100% the, the advent of Twitch. Um, the numbers that were appearing on Twitch were insane. And outside investors, sports teams, marketing agencies, everyone took notice again. And they go, oh, man, I think this is a viable business. Um, mm. and, and that's what you see today is that rocket ship of an influx of cash. And one of the other really interesting things you're talking about is, you know, you, you were able to rely on the fact that you guys, you know, had a lot of players on TV to kind of catapult complexity and to get those partnerships in. And this is something that I go back and look at every now and then. It's so much harder, I think, for people in the in the old to reinvent in the new pre-social media. You know, if you go back and you try to find, you know, DSN from Fnatic social media presence, you know, a world championship player who won everything for two years with an all-star team. He's, he's got almost nothing on Instagram and Twitter because those platforms either didn't exist or weren't really popular throughout that time at all. But, you know, if you're looking at a player today, you know, if a fallen retires or someone like that, well, I mean, he's already got six, seven, eight hundred K on Twitter. So he can reinvent himself as an influencer in another realm. Totally. You know, does, that, does that add an extra level of, you know, dare I say, complexity to the situation? Yeah, it's funny. Harley has become one of my best friends in the world and i've whenever i go to asia for work i, I hang out with harley and, and yeah uh, he's an awesome guy yeah. awesome guy and you know he has reinvented himself uh because he's a good dude and a smart guy uh but it's not because he was a world championship gamer um mm. he's just a, a smart guy that's still working in the space but uh you know you could say that about a, a ton of the old rock star players that you probably maybe have heard of 
but were like the best in the game at during you know back in the day. So mm. it's uh the world's a different place. Social media is a game changer. Instagram, Twitter, um, we're not around, and and that makes being famous a little easier, to be honest. Mm. And I think you even find that with sports stars, right? You know, I was talking to a, a sports celebrity who's getting back into the esports space who played, um, you know, for one of the largest English clubs, you know, back in the 2000s. But once again, you know, almost no social presence because what were people using in the 2000s? A bit of MySpace and obviously that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, maybe the newspaper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so it's crazy. So can you so can you explain a little bit more then um, about, you know, the non-payment of prize pools in esports? I think we've seen that come out a little bit more. You know, we've experienced that a bit here in Australia, but thankfully for us, most of the non-paid prize pools are more in the 10, the 20K rather than sitting around the 300K realm. And I know there are a few people in the market now that are, you know, providing insurances for prize pools that are that are trying to guarantee prize pools. And there's a lot of, you know, associations coming out as well to try to combat against that. But I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit more from your you know, angle as to how, uh, you know, how any organization could promise such a large prize pool and then simply just not pay it out for the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, so with the CPL, they declared bankruptcy, told that everyone that they couldn't pay. And you have mm-hmm. to realize it's not like we had huge sponsors. Like even though we had sponsors, I was still out of pocket. So not only did we not get the prize money that I was going to pay myself back with and then pay the players with, um, you know, we were in the hole. We were negative money on tournaments. Mm. Um, which was rough. Um, but they declared bankruptcy. Another entity bought it. They tried to relaunch it. They declared bankruptcy. Then another entity bought it. Um, and it became this really like toxic brand, which is a shame because I, I credit the CPL with launching esports as we see it today. Um, yeah. They were huge. And, you know, you screw someone over once and in any industry, they'll they'll remember it. But you do it twice and something as small as esports and, and you're gone, you know? Mm. Um, so it was an unfortunate thing at a time where cash was not readily available. Um, so it hurt, man. Those, those, those non-payments really stung at the time. And it's, and it's quite common these days to see, you know, even top tier two level teams selling a sponsorship for, you know, say 500 K us a year for a front of Jersey, a main sponsorship, you know, you're seeing sponsorships multiple years into the millions now, but you know, you're talking about sponsorship back in 2008, you know, if you guys are competing. On, on the global circuit in IEMs and, and CGSs, how much could you expect from a from a brand like an MSI or a Razor or kind of these stalwarts of the esports industry? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, sponsorships were anywhere between fifteen hundred bucks to ten grand a month. So a big deal was like ten Gs a month, and that was for like a title sponsor. Um, mm. And you know, a, a starter deal would be about fifteen hundred bucks, and that's for the whole team. Um, so the numbers were just different. Guys were getting paid five hundred bucks a month. Um, and you know, part of that is, is to your point, they didn't have the social outreach and that marketing platform that having 800 K on Twitter gets you. Um, mm. so players are almost more valuable now, not because they're better players, but because they're, they're, they're marketing vehicles for these products. Mm. Um, you're not just slapping a logo on a Jersey anymore. And I think one of the other major things too is that you don't, in esports these days, you don't have to rely so much on those prize pools, like you were saying, to, to cover your costs. You can rely a little bit more on the sponsorship money coming through and the side money coming through from the personal streaming and, and personal sponsorships to be able to pay your way. Because obviously, you know, relying on prize pools is not a, not a fantastic way to conduct a business when you don't know if you're going to win or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, um, you know, with Twitch and, and these streamers, they're, they're marketers in their own right. 
Um, hmm. The players have much more of an individual brand now than they had in the past. And, you know, you're seeing them get paid 25 K a month. Um, so winning money is awesome. And obviously they want to win, <clears throat> but they don't need that money to pay bills. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. So, you know, I guess going from the CPL and actually one, one last point I had here for the CPL, if anyone would like to Google it as well, there's, there's just a good Wikipedia summary of it, but you can see like when that sale took place after the bankruptcy. So in 2008, they ran a tournament with a $300,000 prize pool in, in two arguably quite questionable esports titles, fear and world in conflict. And then in 2011, they dropped down to a $26,000 prize pool. So less than 10% of their final. Yeah. So you can see it changed hands. And the other thing, or I guess the main thing really that I wanted to talk about so much, which I think is completely forgotten for most people in esports, which is the championship gaming series. So a really quick recap. Ouch, completely forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, and I don't think in a good way. And, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on, right? Because I think there's so many lessons that we need to learn from that that haven't been, you know, that have been completely forgotten by the industry. And I guess like a recap for, for anyone um, watching once again. So the championship gaming series was like a, you know, a worldwide franchise league. There was even a team in Australia, you know, there was, there was the Sydney underground. There was teams in London in Berlin and America all over the world. Um, and it was played live in a studio with a live studio audience. There were ring girls walking around with cards. There was, you know, arguably kind of the first ever famous professional gamer. Um, Jonathan Fatality Wendell was, was one of the main stage commentators for it. Um, and some other massive names in the esports industry as well. Um, the players were paid salaries you know they're all playing in live in a studio and like you said they're being compensated quite well there was large prize pools and the game was counter-strike source that was being played in there but you also said you know they burned through 50 million dollars in two years so i'd be interested to learn from you a little bit more you know like that's a very high level overview of, of kind of how the how the tournament worked but i'd be really interested to learn from you like what did they do right yeah, uh, <clears throat> so you can ask Red Eye or DJ Wheat or Fatality or, or Jason. Like, um, if you were part of the championship gaming series, it was the coolest thing that's ever happened to us uh, at the time. Obviously, uh, players mm -hmm. went from making five hundred bucks a month to thirty grand a year guaranteed. Uh, with prize money, uh, a player could make a hundred grand a year. Again, from five hundred bucks a month, this is legitimate prize money. Your housing was paid for. We had a team car to take around. They got per diem for food uh, and, and whatever, living expenses. Uh, and they lived in L.A. on the beach for seven weeks. Um, it was awesome. Uh, the GMs got paid. We, well, first off, we got paid. I went from losing money running a gaming team as a passion to making more money than any of my friends living in a college dorm room. Um, and, again, I was the youngest one in the league. Like People were supporting families on these salaries. It was, it was a legitimate league and it's what we had finally been waiting for um mm. now so if you were involved it was great some problems they didn't stick to the original game formats they tried to make it fit <clears throat> uh and sorry i have a bit of a cold so my voice oh, cracks I've, i have gone through puberty i, I checked um <laughs> but uh yeah look the the trying to fit esports into a 90 minute format and changing the format of a game like counter-strike doesn't work um mm. You know, they, they had some auxiliary games that weren't super popular. They didn't go with super popular titles. Uh, the scoring system was fairly flawed because Counter-Strike was heavily weighted where a game like FIFA, where you're supposed to get just as excited about, you maybe win a point or two out of what would be an average of 30 or so points. Mm. Um, so that wasn't great. They, they spent too much money. I mean, you know, we all had our own apartments in LA. The players bunked together in like two-bedroom apartments, but... Um, 
you know, again, you're going from 500 bucks a month to 30 grand a year guaranteed. There's a Delta there that players would have still taken. Right. I mean, had you gone a thousand bucks a month and I, I don't want the players being paid. I think they should have paid us us too. Um, you know, you, you could have maybe gotten a little more out of it. The production mm-hmm. staff that they brought in while being amazing at what they did were, you know, some of the best in the industry. Um, but they're not the best in the esports industry. They're the best in football or NASCAR. So you're bringing in these professionals that are used to making X, which is a lot, and you're still paying them X, but they're learning a whole new format. So I just think they, the idea was right and the heart was in it and they're really good people to work with. Um, mm. But just the way they spent money was, was like a bunch of drunken sailors. And um, the only thing I, I will remember is a real negative of the CGS. And again, a lot of people disliked it. If you weren't involved, I don't think you really get it. Um, and I say that with all respect in my heart, they're like, Oh, they're screwing up the game format and they're screwing up player salaries. And that's probably all true. But if you were in that bubble, it was awesome. Um, and the one thing that I'll, I'll really left a bad taste in my mouth is the way they shut down the league was they posted a message on the website. One day I, I woke up, um, and my then girlfriend at the time was like, did you, is the league shut down? And I go, what do you mean? And everyone's Facebook statuses was like, goodbye CGS, like cry emoji. And I was like, I don't, I don't think it's shut down. I go to the website and it just Mm -hmm. says we've ceased operations and there's no email to the GMs. I have all my players calling me. They're freaking out. Frankly, I'm freaking out. Um, And we get an invite for a call like five hours later with no answers yet. We get on the call and they're just like, Hey guys, we decided not to go ahead with season three um you know sorry it was a good effort that was it so from all this mm-hmm. build up and, and this truly amazing life-changing thing that and i think anyone involved will tell you to change their life because it was it was that great uh really shitty way to end it <laughs> to be totally honest with you uh yeah. really really bad way to drop the ball so again when that happened a lot of people felt esports was toxic uh if news corp can't get it done with 50 million how's it going to happen and it, and it took the u.s specifically a long time to recover. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's a you know the the too too hard too early or spending too much too early is something that we've seen in pretty much every scene in esports, right? You know, everyone's yeah, tried that from you know too big influencer houses to spending too much money on prize pool to spending too much money on salaries. And there was a an example that we talked about here where there was this one team in Australia um, that that used to exist that I think is probably the sole team that's responsible for the overinflation of wages. We're either in the single game they played or in the whole industry where you know they were under the guise of well I want to support my players as much as possible, so I'm going to pay them fantastic you know above minimum wage salaries, which is you know minimum wages is, is esports wage a lot of the time. But unfortunately, it meant that they couldn't afford operations staff, they couldn't afford a sales team, they couldn't afford social media managers, and the team folded within a year because out of the, you know, as a as a high flying guest, their six hundred k, they burned through that in a year or so because you know under the guise of looking after their players, but you're not looking after your players if you don't have a business anymore. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that that's exactly what happened with CGS, and and like I said, they could have scaled back. We told them we would take pay cuts. We we were we were worried, and it was always. Listen, guys, you have a three-year commitment from DirecTV. You have a three-year commitment, and uh, mm. I guess we didn't. I mean, we were yeah. scheduled to fly out to L.A. nine days from the time the league got canceled to make league-wide oh. decisions on season three. Um, it was nuts, man. It was a, obviously a decision that had been in the making for a while, but 
you know, unfortunate, mm. but upwards and onwards. So obviously, you know, back in 2008, you know, live streaming was basically non-existent online. Most people didn't have a good enough internet connection to watch it, even though it, it did kind of exist or, just, you know, especially stream it. So everything was based around TV. And obviously you've mentioned direct TV a few times as well. So is that why the format was, was how it was? You know, for example, um, all the broadcasts were done in third person view which is annoying because in, in Counter-Strike, you can watch things in first person, which is fantastic. You can see the strategies much better. You can see how people are controlling the character and aiming. You know, you said there are other formats where it was, um, you know, changing to the limited amount of rounds, for example. It wasn't the regular, you know, 30 rounds to win style format and there was other other ways that it was played. So was all that adapted purely just to be a, a TV broadcast? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think first person is a little more violent than third person in CS. Uh, and yeah, number two. I think that, yeah, I mean, and look, it's a first-person game. They would do replays in first-person, but the entire broadcast was in third-person to give it uh, more of a sports appeal and, uh, mm. again, to reduce on-screen violence. Yeah, okay, interesting. Because, yeah, it made me think a lot, you know, even even in those days watching, I guess that's when I started to learn about Counter-Strike Source was with them and, you know, learning a little bit about Sydney Underground. And I can see here live in the LinkedIn chat, we've got Scotty Boomser who, who played. Boomser. And, and got <laughs> got in trouble quite a lot for yelling a bit too loud. On, oh, on big fan yeah. of that guy. Big fan. Yeah, and I, I don't, it was always interesting as to why, you know, it was in third person and thinking if if I was to watch, you know, hockey or the NFL or basketball, would I watch it in first person and had an opportunity? And, and I'd say I, I probably would. It's, it was always intriguing to me why they decided to go with a third person format. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, they got guys that were very good at what they did, <clears throat> but what they did was not esports. Mm. And I guess, you know, you've, you've highlighted an important thing that I've talked so much about recently, which is, you know, how do you, how do you marry together the traditional industry and the esports industry? You know, I think it's obviously extremely important to have people from, you know, the esports industry when you're trying to push a company forwards, because they're going to understand what the viewers want, which is ultimately what brings in the money. You know, they're going to understand the trends in the market and such, but there's also an advantage to bring in traditional business people because they have access to funding. They've got access to brands and they've also got, you know, the degrees and the experience, but you know, at, at what level, you know, do you put in that esports and, and at what level do you put in the, um, you know, the rest, you know, how does, how does that kind of function in your, in your experience, trying to marry together those, those two worlds? I think you have to marry the two worlds. If you have a, a, a let's take teams, for example, right? Because that's what I did for a billion yeah. years of my life is run teams. Uh, if you have it be all esports people and you don't bring in those salespeople or you don't bring in the people with the business acumen to get you to the next level or help you fundraise, you'll fail. Um, mm. We've seen teams that are super corporate and they're, they're people that don't understand esports and they fail. Um, you need a good mix of both and esports is at a professional level where, uh, you, you know, you don't have just one world or the other. I mean, esports is a, is a true entertainment industry. It's a true, an esports team specifically is an apparel brand. There's an entertainment company. It's a talent agency. It's, it's everything. So, mm. uh, you know, you need people with different skill sets to complement each other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. There's a, and there's a really good um, question that's come through the chat as well. Um, one, one that I, I wish I kind of thought of myself, which was about, you know, we're we're kind of learning about the problems with the, with the past right now, and a lot of it really is just too big, too early. Are there any current worrying trends that you see in esports today that might affect our our growth over the next ten years? I, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is going to be a popular answer since I do work with a lot of leagues, but uh, I, I think that it's very, when you pay $30 million for a team slot, it's hard to recover that cash right now. Um, mm. Now, maybe I was, look, the Houston Outlaws sold for $40 million, right? So their spot went up in value. And I think a lot of people point to that. So 
is $30 million a lot 10 years down the line? No, not with the growth that's going on right now, but you have to realize it's a long-term play. Um, Mm -hmm. So let me clarify that answer just so I don't upset the wrong people. Do I think an esports team is worth $30 million right now? Not if you expect to make that cash back in three to five years, right? But if you believe Mm -hmm. in a long-term play here, which is what you should be doing, if you're spending that kind of dough, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you could buy the Clippers for $50 million 30 years ago, you'd do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think the team prices right now are, are, are heavy. Um, and I think some of the seed funding that goes into esports companies, because it's a buzzword, there's a lot of dumb money coming in to companies that don't necessarily deserve it. Um, and there's some amazing esports companies out there that aren't getting funded. Um, I think esports is a big buzzword with VCs right now. Mm. Um, and so they're throwing cash right away because they, they figure they have to get an esports. And I have buddies at VCs that send me decks and I'm like, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm worried about is bad cash coming in to ideas that don't deserve funding simply because they want to be in the space and then seeing a crash um, and, and having that be a bad look on the industry. So mm. Just to clarify, I think esports is an amazing industry. I'm going to be in it for the rest of my life. I fully support it. I just think people, when they invest in it, should be smart about what they invest in, just like they would be smart about anything else. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And and I guess, you know, to back up what you were saying, talking to AEG, who, who do hold some of those franchise positions, you know, they likened it very similar to the MLS. You know, they, they bought in quite heavily to Major League Soccer in the US, but they said that they saw that as a 10, 15, 20-year play. Right. And, and something that, you know, you're not looking to get back straight away. And I would agree. I mean, if you look at the Forbes articles and, and talking to some of my friends who are, you know, privy to the information of these esports teams, those multiples are are quite accurate. You know, a lot of these teams are functioning on 7 to 22x multiples when they're raising capital. Right. And obviously, a, a company is worth what people are willing to invest. But, 100%. you know, can the market really back that up? And and a lot of times, you know, the answer is, is no. Well, in esports, it's not like you're buying a product and you're looking for you're investing 3x revenue, you're buying futures in an entertainment mm. industry. Um, and you're you're willing to take those multiples because you believe in the industry long term. And I, I've met some people that have made that play. And I think they're going to make a lot of money. I've also met some people in this time that are like, I can't believe I haven't got my money back. It's been two years. And that blows my mind, because obviously, there was research that was not done to make these timeline expectations in their in their heads. Mm, yeah, that's that's really true. Yeah, yeah, you got to invest into esports for the long term play. And you know, there's there's been so much discussion around the franchise leagues. And and for me, you know, with my content, you know, I haven't really had a position kind of sitting on either side. I know that that my lawyer and you know had a lot of discussions with him, who's an esports lawyer, Matt Jessup. You know, who's very strong on IP is is very for franchise leagues. But it is scary, like you were saying, when you're looking at twenty five million dollars to buy into Call of Duty, which is arguably you know, almost a tier two esport. If you purely just look at the viewership metrics, you know, in history, it, it does become a hard, it does become a hard sell unless there's some really strong support, you know, from Blizzard behind there. And hey, look, there's, you know, there's been some articles come out and, and I've covered that as well on on um, on LinkedIn recently about Blizzard looking to financially support the teams that might be struggling, you know, due to coronavirus and stuff too. But, you know, it definitely is a two-way street and it's hard when you, like you said, with DirecTV, 
you were always told it's a three-year deal, it's a three-year deal, it's a three-year deal. You know, I've got another friend that was in a, a franchise-style league in a, in a global esport, and I'm, I can't mention who it is, but he had very similar. You know, he was raising capital off the fact that he had a signed piece of paper that said, you know, you're in a three-year deal with this, and it, and it cut off after he, it was, believe it was year one or year two, and, you know, created a lot of problems for his business. Yeah, I, I look, <clears throat> Blizzard is an awesome company to work with. We support Call of Duty League and, and Overwatch League at the Switch. Um, their vision is insane in like a great way. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to be a part of it as a fly on the wall and and help support you know eighty six live events around the world. Which if coronavirus didn't happen, would have would have happened. And I think they would have changed esports, and I think they still will. Uh, that's a company that's completely behind their leagues. They're behind Overwatch. They're behind Call of Duty. They're hiring really cool people uh, like Joanna Ferris, who's you know frankly a badass, <clears throat> and they're going to do huge things. Uh, and hopefully we'll be here to support them. They've been mm. an incredible client and, and partner. And I mean, 86 live events around the world is is a lot. I mean, that's a mm. lot to pull off. So uh, I can't wait for coronavirus to be done and, and Blizzard does its thing because I think it'll impress a lot of people. <clears throat> uh, the thing with CGS is there was no outside funding, right? DirecTV was cutting that check themselves. There was, players were not being paid by an outside source. And um you know, with the Call of Duty and Overwatch League or ESL, the teams are are responsible for funding themselves. And that's really the way it should be because that's the way every other sport is. The league doesn't pay the player salaries anywhere else. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I had a I had a thought. I had a thought and it disappeared. My mind's racing right now. There's there's so much there's so much that happened around around this E-League thing. Sorry, around the championship gaming series thing. And I and I guess the next one really is is kind of E-League. You know, E-League was was launched by by Turner. Um, and it seemed to be quite a very similar format, but with the traditional teams that are, you know, were paying their own way, you know, like you said. And that was a, you know, a live studio. There was teams from all over the world, including once again a team from Australia. There was a Renegades who are now 100 Thieves playing in that too. But that seemed to be a massive success. You know, that was the first ever Twitch tournament to reach 1 million concurrent viewers, you know, across the across the Western market. And, you know, they continued on. I think they've they've tapered off quite a bit, you know, as to what, what they were doing previously with E-League. But I'd be interested to see, you know, from you, obviously you didn't work with E-League in the back end, but but sitting, sitting from the front end of that, did they fix a lot of those problems that, that CGS you know, made in the past? And, you know, is there still room for, you know, a live studio, live studio audience franchise style league? Uh, yes and yes. I, I think they absolutely fixed some problems. I was a viewer of E-League, but I'm also a gigantic Counter-Strike fan. Um, and they did it the right way. Look, you have teams that are independently owned that came to compete in a, a Valve-sanctioned tournament with certain rules, certain format. You're not changing the format. Um, you're just upping mm -hmm. the production level realistically. And I think esports can benefit for that. I, I don't like it when people in esports are resistant to traditional sports. And we don't have to take everything from traditional sports, obviously, but we can learn from each other. Traditional sports can learn from esports. Esports can learn from traditional. They can help us up our game. We can help them innovate in sports that don't necessarily innovate. Um, so it's got to be a symbiotic relationship. Um, so I thought E-League did a great job. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So there's just a, there's just a few um just a few discussions coming through like in the in the chat as well. Some questions from William Davis. We've got Scott Badansky joining in the, the conversation and Nick B as well. Um, and he was asking when we will see the triumphant return of JMC and we'll see them take a championship. That was obviously the first team that you mentioned today. Yeah. So uh, you know, Jack's Money Crew was I'm going to go ahead and just say the best team in North American history. 
Uh, I mean, not <clears throat> based off wins or anything, but based off heart and spirit. Um, we were we were honestly largely considered like the third best team all the time, and we were sort of the little giants. And there was complexity in 3D that had these big salaries. And then JMC, like we managed to like win tournaments, and then we lose players, and we win tournaments again, and we lose players. Um, so a lot of heart in that team. Um, when we see him come back, I, I don't think you'll ever see me run a team again, but, uh, Hey, you know, never say never. So you obviously competed against complexity for a long time. And then, and then you, um, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So, so you did join them. So what was that, what was that development like over, over the years with you working at complexity, you know, in esports over those, you know, six to 10 years. And I mean, just for the record, we did knock them out of CPL 2005, so we could beat them, but you know, I understand (laughs) what you're saying. Um, yeah, I mean, look, after CGS, uh, the world was on fire, the world of esports. And so there wasn't enough sponsors for Jason Lake to have a team and me to have a team. And we talked about it and we said, look, you know, we're really, really good friends. We're amazing friends to this day. Um, I was actually texting with him the other day. Uh, you know, so let's do this together. He's like, I have two kids. I can't do the traveling stuff. I was still pretty young at the time. I was 21. I, you know, going around the world with the team sounded awesome. I had a good eye for talent. Um, mm. Jason is obviously an incredibly respected former lawyer. Um, and so we just combined forces, uh, with, with Jason Bass, who also deserves a ton of credit for just kind of being behind the scenes and keeping, keeping it chill. Um, cause you know, as everyone has seen Lake and I are, we're excitable guys. Um, and it was a, it was a blast, man. We had some amazing squads come out of that. We had the legendary call of duty squad that won like 11 tournaments in a row. Uh, we had the number one and number two were the Warcraft teams in the world. And, uh, you know, Wreckful actually played for us. Obviously, it was very sad news about him, but uh, traveled around the world with Byron for a while. Um, and just all those guys had such heart. Um, you know, we were able to get some amazing brand deals from amazing partners and get a product line in Best Buy. So being able to have a complexity product line uh, where we put that deal together collectively was incredibly cool to be able to go into Best Buy and, and see our logo. Um, so it was a, it was a crazy ride. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Obviously after CGS, it was, you went from having everything taken care of to just, all right, let's start over and then building back up. You can't see my hand, but I'm doing this with the other side. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it was, you know, it was a hell of a ride and to end it with, uh, well, at least end my involvement with the sale to the Dallas Cowboys. I don't think you could ask for a better end of that story and lakes over there still doing his thing. Um, I see him whenever I'm in Dallas. I'm actually moving to Dallas in two weeks. Um, so we'll see even more of him. Um, and I'm, I'm incredibly proud of what he's accomplished. And they, I, in my opinion, have the best Counter-Strike team in the world right now. Um, and he promised people they'd get back there. So go complexity. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, you know, if, if complexity has, has nothing if not heart and and passion, you know, over those years. And I, and I implore anyone who's listening. Uh, especially back to the audio. Huh? Have you... No, you haven't got me. Give me a second. Try again. It's okay. Yeah, you got me now. Uh, Let's have a look. Live. Yeah, I seem to still have audio on my side. There we go. I got it. Yeah, you got me back. Yeah, yeah. so I was, I was saying that, you know, oh, complexity, seem, complexity <laughs> seems to have nothing, um, you know, if if not heart and passion, you know, over these years. And I'd implore anyone, you know, who's listening to the to the recording or or if you're watching live right now, do it a bit later. Take a look at Jason Lake live at, at Counter-Strike Tournaments, known as a man for getting extremely excited, slapping the back of chairs and um 
yeah, firing up his players as much as possible. But that's Lake, man. And, and it's, a lot of people asked us, like, is that all for the cameras? <laughs> we'd watch a Counter-Strike tournament in a hotel room together with no cameras, and we'd be going nuts. I mean, that's, the guy's just got so much heart. He was an amazing guy to yeah. work with. He's an amazing friend. Um, <clears throat> and look, Complexity is successful because of Jason Lake. Mm. And, you know, talking to some of my friends who've, who've um, you know, sold part or all of their esports teams, it's quite common for them to come to me and say, Chris, I've got six, seven, eight offers on the table here of different people that would like to invest and work with us. You know, and, and I would say as a guest, Complexity is probably pretty pretty much in a similar situation. So why why someone like the Dallas Cowboys? Like why, why an NFL team versus some VC investment versus, you know, maybe an agency is quite common to want to buy into the space or, or a, a media or a multinational company? Yeah, I mean, look, we had offers. Uh, it was a it was a gold rush three years ago in esports. People were just throwing cash in and, and getting ready to hop on that train. Um, mm. I I mean, look, at the end of the day, the Dallas Cowboys is the most valuable sports franchise in the world. They are the number one most valued sports franchise in any sport in the world. Mm. Um, so to be associated with them, I knew I was leaving. So obviously, I wanted that on my resume. Um, I wanted the team to be in good hands. They presented a plan. Uh, I think they took Lake on the helicopter a few times, which helped too. But um, <laughs> they presented a plan that was a true integration plan uh, where the players eat with the team and they have a facility at the star. Uh, they have the same mental health as the team. They have the same access to physical coaching as the team. They were truly integrated in the Cowboys system. Um, and, and look, the Cowboys came through on all of that. If you mm. go to the complexity facility and you see how well they're integrated into part of the Cowboys program, it is what every team in the world should strive for. Um, the Cowboys don't screw around, right? You know, and and on, on anything that they do, um, you know, even if you go to their gift store, it's insane. <laughs> so uh, we knew we'd be in good shape uh, and good hands. And, you know, Jason's delivered championships like he told them he would. And um, and they've treated him, I think, incredibly well. I don't want to speak for his on his behalf, but um, I think it's incredible what they've been able to accomplish and what they're going to continue to accomplish. <clears throat> and the partnership is really what what people should strive for. Mm, yeah, and that and that possible, you know, that that full, um, you know, collaboration seems to be something a lot of people have talked about, but not that many people have done. You know, we've seen a lot of other teams around the world that have partnered in various levels with traditional sports teams, but yeah, you just never quite see that that full integration. Yeah, I mean the players aren't in the in the team locker room yet, but other than that, they're they're like this. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. <clears throat> might, might scare some of the guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so where where do you see the you know where do where do you see the future of esports heading to? You know, are there any current trends that that you're looking at? Yeah, I mean viewership numbers are insane, and people can point to COVID, but five billion hours of of Twitch watched in Q1, that's insane. That's that's mm. amazing. I think. Esports fans are born every day and fans of maybe more traditional sports. I don't want to say they die every day because it's very morbid, but they're, they're not born every day. Um, you know, esports is producing, you know, five, five fans a second, or I, I mean, I'm making that stat up, but it is a rocket ship right now. Viewership numbers are going to continue to go up. Brands are taking it more seriously. They're learning how to integrate properly. Um, people are learning how to broadcast it in a captivating way. Uh, they're activating their user bases in ways that no one else is doing. So, yeah, I see trends. I think this is a rocket ship. Uh, I'm mm. incredibly proud to still be in this industry. I believe in this industry. Um, I, I think the whole world believes in this industry. It, it's not a matter anymore. And, you know, Nick B or Scott could tell you this, but back in the day you had to 
convince people esports was a thing. Well, it's not an argument anymore. Esports is a thing. And you either get it and you know how to take advantage of it, integrate well, market correctly, or you don't. And that's fine. You don't have to get it. There's a lot of stuff I don't get. I don't understand cricket. Never will. But, uh, you know, doesn't mean cricket's not a thing. Mm. <laughs> that's pretty true. Yeah, that that's a it's a very similar response to what I give. You know, it's a super common question for people outside the industry. Say, Chris, what do you say to a sports professional or a fan that says, you know, esports is a joke; it doesn't exist? And say, well, I don't know; they're not my market, so I don't care. Like, yeah. you know, I don't I don't watch swimming. I don't watch Formula One the same way that if they don't watch Counter Strike, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, the viewership numbers are there and the money's there, so it's not a question: is is it a thing or does it exist? It does. You know, it's mm. it's a the number one form of entertainment is, is video games, right? Mm. Uh, there's metrics there to support that. Mm. What about esports at the Olympics? I'd love to I'd love to get some of your opinion on that, pros and cons. Yeah, I look, I think as more esports fans are born, it's it's gonna have to be part of the Olympics. Uh, it's part of the X Games. Uh, I was I was there for that. Pretty exciting. Mm. Um, I don't know in what capacity. I know ESL had a deal with the Olympics to do sort of a non meddling side event that the mm. switch was going to support and it's obviously with covid that got canceled that was um, the intel back thing was it like pre yeah. pre-olympic showing yeah exactly um it was like a 500k tournament um esl has been another powerhouse in the space of gaming that's been around forever and um craig levine obviously one of my best friends just got named the ceo um but the switch has, has loved working with them and i remember i had to go when i first got this job to like nine events around the world to convince them to work with us. Cause they, I, I, frankly, I didn't really understand what my company did when I first started, but they just said, just keep showing up. So that's actually how I got to go to Australia and see your beautiful country. Hey, um, hey, and hey. I think I bothered them enough to the point where they gave us a, an event and it, thank God, nothing, nothing lit on fire. And uh, now, you know, we have an amazing relationship with ESL and I love the people over there. Um, I mean, it's just a really creative outside the box company. Um, mm. so I know they have a great relationship with the Olympic committee. Um, and I would just like to see that evolve. Mm. The, the Olympics one is quite interesting to me. Cause I guess if you look at another, you know, large esports tournament of old, that's, um, you know, isn't nowhere near as big as it used to be, which is the world cyber games. The, the format was always a, a kind of worrisome thing to me, you know, where you could only have, you know, one team or a certain amount of teams or representatives from each country. And, you know, they were landlocked you know, or region locked as to, you know, where the people were born as to who they could play with. So that would mean that in CS 1.6, it was hard because a lot of the best teams in the world were from Sweden, but only one team was allowed to compete. Um, right. Or in StarCraft 2, which is another game that was in WC, that was in WCG, was hard because, you know, nine out of 10 of the best players in the world are from Korea. Right. Um, but, you know, they're locked there. And that's, that's always my concern, you know, with that traditional format. Yes, it's great that it gives everyone an opportunity, but unfortunately that's, that doesn't create the best competitive integrity for a tournament which then mightn't, you know, result in the best showing on screen, which which means that not as many people are going to tune in and watch because if there's only one North American team that can compete and right now, you know, that's complexity, well, it sucks because, you know, all the other organizations who are also competitive don't get a showing there whatsoever. Yeah, and I mean, to your point, complexity's got players from three different countries. Um, yeah. There was a player called Dominator that was my team captain on the Dallas Venom, and we joked that he literally got paid by 3D to play in one tournament a year because they had a player named Shagwar Griffin Benger, who was unbelievable, but he was Canadian. Mm. So Shag can never play WCG. Um, Samsung was a big part, or Intel rather, was a big partner for 3D. And 
I know Craig just said, I don't care how you guys play all year. Just just win WCG, get the spot. And every year they got the spot. Every year that was Josh's only tournament. Um, and so when I finally got in a play for me, it was it was awesome. But to your point, but then again, I mean, that's how the Olympics works, right? So I, I don't have a huge problem with that format. Um, mm. And I think it's just a matter of time as esports numbers go up that, that people will include it in, in everything. Mm. Yeah, and I guess a super common tagline you see online a lot is, you know, we don't need the Olympics, the Olympics needs us. But yeah, I think it's, you know, I, th- I think it's an interesting point. You know, for me, I, I was, you know, I guess would say pretty adamantly anti-Olympics a lot of the time due to, you know, I think uh, a lot of the public PR presence was them coming in saying, okay, look, esports kids, you know, we know how to run this stuff. We're going to tell you how it goes, which we obviously, you know, doesn't work. We just spent 20 minutes talking about that, but, you know, with DirecTV and the CGS. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's some some format problems that need to come around, and and also I think there's the monetization aspect and and the money values behind it that a lot of people don't understand. You know, talking to um, traditional sports people who ask me why it's not in the Olympics yet, explaining to them that you know League of Legends has a financial gain to being in the Olympics over Dota two, for example. You know, it's a f- yes, it's a free game to play, but they're making money in the back end through microtransactions. So how does that work? You know, are they paying to be in there? But then you don't need to does running or high or high jump or pole vaulting need to pay to be in the Olympics? And I think that creates like an extra level of complexity because of the commercialization aspect behind it that a lot of these other sports don't don't, you know, um, don't go through. No, absolutely. I think that's that's spot on. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So you know, other other trends coming up in the esports space I'd love to talk to you about is is kind of like the the blurring the lines between esports and gaming. You know, something that didn't exist in the past is battle royales, and I think that they've done this quite a lot. And you see a lot of the older hats in the in the industry, you know, complaining about Fortnite not being a real esport and just being for kids and things like that too. But I think you know they've reinvented the industry so much where you could make an argument that Ninja's an esports athlete because while he's an entertainer. I mean, if you're taking it at face value, he's competed in tournaments. You know, he's won cash and he's placed highly. And if you look at a lot of a lot of these larger organizations, like 100 Thieves and FaZe Clan, for example, they almost don't even operate as an esports team these days. How often do you see FaZe tweeting about their esports organization, or compared to tweeting about Banks and Rain and Adapt and Lambos and Gucci and things like that too? I'd be yeah. interested to learn from you. You know, complexity to me seems to sit. You know, I'd say there's probably a there's probably like a, a sliding scale where you've got like fanatic complexity, cloud nine, EG on the sports team side. I feel like maybe you've got some um, hundred thieves, which is sitting in the middle, which is a little bit between the both. And then you've got phase clan on the left, which, you know, respectfully, and I've, and I've said this to face as well. They're almost not even an esports team. I'd be really interested to, to learn from you, like how you see that developing. I think, I think based off their counter-strike team salaries, they might disagree that they're not an esports team, but uh... <laughs> almost, I say almost. <laughs> Yeah, look, esports teams have evolved into full entertainment studios, right? Uh, you're mm. producing content, you're producing apparel, um, you're doing fan interaction series. Um, and I love that. I, I love that esports teams have the resources to pull all that off because it, the people that run these things are incredibly smart and creative. Um, I think a lot of my um, my friends from back in the day have become grumpy old men and they say, oh, Fortnite's not an esport. Well, a lot of people watch it, so the numbers are there. So it's an esports, it's not Counter Strike. Um, mm. To the Ninja thing, I would, I think Ninja's incredibly talented, and what he's done is is pro, like, propel the entire industry. Honestly, uh, I don't know if he would even call himself an esports athlete. I, I think he would just say he's an entertainer and a gamer, and that's mm. totally okay. Um, I think someone that that's an esports athlete or an esports player, whatever term you want to use, has to be actively competing. Um, 
and that's their job. Ninja's job is to entertain millions upon millions of people, and he does it incredibly well. Um, mm. A guy like Fallen's job is to be an esports athlete, um, and, and so I, I think there's a there's a differentiator there. Um, but again, not all gamers need to be esports athletes. Not, I mean, not all esports athletes need to play a ton of different video games. I mean, when people play Counter Strike, a lot of my <clears throat> Counter Strike friends just play Counter Strike. Right. So they're focused on their job. Mm. Um, but obviously the, the two industries are going to rise together. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. And, you know, I feel like, especially with games like Fortnite, the lines are just so much more blurred than ever before. You know, these people that are winning tournaments are, um, you know, are creating just as much content as they are playing in tournaments. You know, if you look at like a Benji Fishy, for example, or a Booger, you know, streaming, you know, multiple days a week while also playing in these tournaments at the same time. Um, but, you know, it, it opens up those alternative revenue streams that was never available, you know, to the CS 1.6 players back in 2005. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little, little bit more money flowing around today, you know, with a, with a $40 million tournament. Small <laughs> amount. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, and I always think it's super important because I, f- I feel like a lot of people in the esports market, and, and I, I had exactly this too, right? Like I was saying, okay, I'm going to quit my job at Corsair. I'm going to convince brands to invest into esports because it's the next biggest thing. It's hot. It's, it's growing. Like, yes, that's all true. But like you were saying as well, it is a bit of a buzzword. And I think if you're looking at the numbers, the blurring only helps us because, Gaming is a hundred and fifty-three-ish billion dollar market globally. Totally. Esports is a one point one billion dollar market. So if totally. nothing else, if you want to make a unicorn company, you can't really have a billion dollar company in a one point one billion dollar market unless you own ninety percent right. of everything that's going on, which is impossible. You can't own all the teams and the leagues and the players at the same time. So it makes sense, you know, to blur and and looking at the incomes from a lot of these teams, you know, I'm really glad you said what you said before, which is that a team it isn't just a it isn't just a gaming team. They're a talent management agency. They're a media hub. They're also you know an an agency in themselves, and now they're an influence agency too. On top of that, and you know there's so much Absolutely, more that goes yeah. into an esports team these days. Absolutely, I mean these players are, are marketing vehicles. They're rock stars. They're they're again. It's not that the players from back in the day were bad guys or less entertaining. In a lot of cases, I'll be honest, I think they were more entertaining, but they didn't have the same outlets to express themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, and I would implore anyone to go back, you know, and, and take a look at some of the videos, you know, as to the as the old beige CRT monitors, people kicking it in, in CS 1.6 back in the old CPL days, because I think there's a I think there's a lot to learn. And I think there's a lot to learn from the CGS. You know, we saw that semi reinvented with E-League, and I'd love to see some similar, you know, and more concepts like that in, in the future. But, you know, I think, you know, for anyone who's watching this, please just go back and do a little bit of, of looking. You know, esports, I think, was a lot, lot bigger than what we give credit for. You know, looking at the amount of money that Fatality was able to win and World Championships, looking at, you know, Thresh winning a twin turbo um, Ferrari, you know, in, in a Quake tournament, arguably one of the first Ferrari. ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, winning winning the CEO's Ferrari directly, you know, for winning a tournament and not, uh, was it the story like you didn't have enough money to be able to ship it home or to pay the taxes to, <laughs> to yeah, own the, the car? the taxes on it were nuts. But it was like- yeah. And insurance, obviously. So, you know, looking, looking at esports of old, I really feel like, you know, the industry was already massive, but, you know, it took a little bit of a dive and, and now it's been built maybe a little bit more sustainably, you know, with people like Riot Games backing it, Valve now actually paying and, and putting their checkbook behind what's going on. Games like Fortnite coming out and reinventing the space. Like you said, you know, esports is here to stay, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from the past. I'd love to see some reinvention of some ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my new role to switch has been exciting because I'm working with the leagues and the tournaments and not as much the teams, I mean, teams are still our clients. We basically support live events, right? So we get 
a signal mm -hmm. from point A to point B. We just released a very robust cloud-based production solution. Um, so in a COVID okay. world, that's amazing. We can produce an yeah. entire event uh, from the cloud. Um, so the, the people we work with and the level that they think at and they dream at and they plan at is incredible. And it gives me an incredible amount of hope for, for esports. And thank God we have engineers that are way smarter than me, which not the hardest thing to do, but really a lot smarter than me, um, you know, figuring out solutions for these guys. Cause they're like, you know, we want to have 86 events in 86 different places around the world, make mm -hmm. it happen. And, and we do. Um, so it's cool to be on this side of the, of the aisle, obviously having been on the team side, going to a tournament and, and not really being so invested in who wins as much as it's just being awesome. Um, so I kind of view my role now is to continue to help grow esports and and take these resources we have from a, a major sports and TV company, the switch and, and bring them into esports and, and just try and give them the tools to, to keep the, the growth sustainable. Mm, fantastic. So if anyone's watching now live on LinkedIn or, or listening back to the audio only podcast or watching the video, where can they follow you online and, and connect with you? Yeah, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an invite here. Um, I had a, a Twitter account, but I had to turn it off because after I did some Call of Duty hosting, the Call of Duty community got kind of mean towards me. <laughs> no, uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, kind of, not really. Um, and uh, so I'm not on Twitter anymore. Big LinkedIn guy. Uh, the switch.tv is our website. Um, so you can see me there. And I uh, look forward to connecting with people. And, and at a tournament, you can always come up and say hi. I'll probably be there. Fantastic, man. Well, I really enjoyed this this esports history lesson, if nothing else. Yeah. I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Awesome, man. Thank you for having me. And obviously, really good to connect with uh, the people down under. I will say ESL Australia was uh, one of the most fun events I've ever been to. And just seeing that the fan base down there, it's very real. Uh, I knew Scott was a psychopath, but I didn't know all you guys were. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I think if I was if I was to rank um, esports fans, especially CS:GO fans, in level of nuts, I'd probably put Brazil number one, but Australia is a very close number two. <laughs> there was a guy at ESL Australia, ESL Sydney, I am Sydney, that sold his car. He's Brazilian, sold his car to go watch MIBR in IEM Sydney, and I thought that was dedication. Yeah, yeah, that's some pretty serious dedication. <laughs> they could retain that number one spot there, that's for sure. Yeah, crazy, totally, man. Crazy. All right, thanks, mate. And, and thanks to everyone, whether you're watching live now on LinkedIn, watching the video back, or listening to the audio-only version of the podcast. Uh, the podcasts are now coming out every Thursday Australian time or should be uh, early Thursday morning if you're in the US or the UK. Thanks for listening, guys. We've got plenty more content to come. Bye for now.